0: listening to the drunken pen writing podcast i'm your host caleb james with me as always spencer the saskatoon soothsayer church that's a it's an odd one but okay and we have a special guest this week another special guest we just had tyler gore on last week which was fun he is a former pastor of 16 years and a phd in advanced studies in human behavior his books lectures and resources help us navigate through mental health issues from a faith-based perspective his nonprofit organization, Unmuted, helps give victims of trauma their voices back, and he travels the world speaking at churches, schools, prisons, and other venues. And equally as important, and the reason he's on the show, he is the author of Monster Mirror hundred Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as son of Sam on mental health and evil phenomenon, Dr. Michael Caparelli. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me on. It's a privilege. Now, not to just dive into it real hard and heavy, but I think the biggest question I have for you is why David Berkowitz. I mean, there's always been a fascination in this country for serial killers, but why him specifically? Well, I
1: think it's important for the listener to understand that I grew up in a home where my dad was in prison. I come from an Italian American family. My dad was involved in. Uh, well, I'll keep that. I'll keep that under the radar, but. <laughs> He was involved in some activities and ended up in prison. And I, I would visit him at a young age, probably like 10 or 11 years old. In Italian-American families, when your dad goes to prison, they say he went to college. Oh, yeah. you know, I remember my mother my mother telling me at 11 he was in school. I said, what's he in school for? She said, law. So I used to go visit him in, in school, in, in college or in prison. And uh, after I grew up a little bit, as a teenager, I got into trouble, a lot of trouble with the law. I ended up in juvenile jail myself at 17. It's actually where I found my faith. So I always had this predisposition or proclivity, probably a better word, proclivity towards prisoners. And uh, after I I got out of juvenile jail, became a Christian, got very involved with the church, ended up getting my bachelor's in theology, my master's degree, and started pastoring a church. And then while pastoring a church for many years, uh, that church was involved with prison ministry. So I always worked with inmates. In fact, David Berkowitz is the third serial killer that I dealt with. I dealt with two others. I didn't go far in the relationship with them. Well, actually, one of them I went back and forth with for a good 20 years.
0: So well, a little bit years. far. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, 18 years. But it was on and off. It wasn't 18 years consistent. It was a lot of psychopathic games. I was just very involved in prison ministry, visiting inmates, doing Bible studies in the prison, chaplaincy. But those two relationships ended. They were just too dysfunctional, I couldn't really get too far. They were too caught up in this psychopathy. But David Berkowitz, i had seen his story on the 700 Club and it interests me. I said, boy, is it really true that this guy experienced a conversion? So I mail him my book. This is back in 2020, 2021. Mailed him one of my books. I wrote five. I wrote a book on mental health from a faith-based perspective. Understand this is after I had accomplished my PhD. Um, that took about seven or eight years. Completed the PhD in behavioral science. Wrote some books on mental health. Mail one to David. David reads it, finds it fascinating. And he probably writes me back in about two weeks from the time I sent him the book and says, uh, I'd love you to come meet with me. I've been waiting for a guy like you that is both uh, a Christian that understands the spiritual but is also educated in psychology that can explain the psychological. So April 1st, 2021, uh, right in the middle of COVID, I'm sorry, April 1st, 2022, right in the middle of COVID. Well, some people would say it was COVID has ended, which I understand that. But uh, the, pr- the prison respected uh, or at least expected you to wear the masks and adhere to their policies. So, April 1st, 2022, I, I show up at Shoregun Correctional Facility in Wallkill, New York. I meet with inmate number 78A, 1976, David Berkowitz. And that first session begins. Uh, a case study, the longest analysis ever done on David Berkowitz, 34 sessions, 100 hours discussing the mental health factors behind his crimes, as well as his transformation over the last 35 years since his conversion in 1988.
0: Did you have any preconceived notions of what he would be like when you met him because of your experiences with the other serial killers you mentioned? Well, you said that, like the one was playing games with you. So you probably would go into it not quite sure if this guy actually went through a real conversion or if he was just kind of messing with you, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I did have a mutual friend that knew him, Don Wilkerson, who started Teen Challenge, which is a substance abuse treatment program. It's pretty popular across the country. It's a faith-based program. Don knew David. So Don had already given me some, you know, insights uh, that he was the real deal. And, you know, the guys I deal with with jailhouse conversions they don't last long. They last maybe six months and they're usually right before a parole hearing. So, David, the fact that he'd been a Christian for 35 years and so involved, I did lean more towards this is the real deal than I was cynical. You know, I guess if I had preconceived ideas that were challenged, it was more his personality. Most of the lifers that I know are lazy, you know, they get institutionalized pretty quickly. They feel pretty helpless. They don't really do much. That was shattered. David's a very busy, buoyant, active personality. I didn't expect that. I never expected him to be as productive at 70 years old and as busy as he is. Um, I mean, he's got to be one of the most productive guys I know. So that was, that was definitely a, a shattering of a preconceived notion.
0: Prisons are touted as institutions of, like, rehabilitation. And... That's one thing I found when I was looking up this stuff that was really notable was how many serial killers, especially infamous ones, have become born again Christians. And I just, I, I guess, my question to you would be: Do you believe someone who has proven capable of committing such like evil acts that David did? Can you really rehabilitate their soul? Can you pull an evil man from the darkness and bring him to the light? Because that's one of those things where, in, you know, in, in the prison setting, there's a lot of time and they have a lot of thinking and maybe they can repent and really think on their sins and actually change as people.
1: Well, first of all, usually the people you're referring to that do, quote unquote, convert, if you really, I mean, I, I work with prisoners for 20 years, so I, I I'm not making this statement based on what i saw on tv or what i saw on youtube videos i've been up close and personal with inmates for 20 years usually the less than authentic conversions are spurty david has not been spurty he's been very steady it's hard to put on an act for 35 years yeah he's had a very steady involvement in his faith it's not like on off the other thing is being a christian in prison is not the easy path it's a lot of muslims usually Mm -hmm. Muslims are more the popular path because Islam is a very militant, masculine religion. The idea of turning the other cheek, which is the teachings of Christ, is not very popular in prison. So this idea, I mean, there's a lot of myths out there, just ideas of what you know jailhouse conversion is. And the fact that he's a Christian, that's the harder path in a prison. Now, why do I believe that? I mean, I've got obviously exposure to 1,600 records that I've looked at that David gave me his prison reports, his psychiatric reports, his police records. I mean, letters between him and people. So I I got a chance to see how active he is in his faith for the last 35 years, but even more profound than actions. Believe it or not, there is something more profound than actions when it comes to seeing somebody's character. The real real litmus test of knowing someone's character is not actions. The real litmus test is reactions. I got a chance to see David's reactions sitting with him a hundred hours. A reaction is an action in real time, it's unscripted. It's something you really can't control, it's visceral. It comes right out of the gut. It's when a man is caught off guard or taken by surprise, how he behaves. I got a chance to see David Berkowitz angry. I showed up in one of the sessions and he had a, a, a dispute with an inmate. And the inmate says some pretty awful things. And I watched David navigate through anger for three and a half hours. And uh, I know, you know what to look for being trained in behavioral science. And this guy has demonstrated characteristics that fly in the face of being a psychopath. Was he a psychopath? Absolutely. No question. 1976, 77, he was a psychopath. Who he is today and how he behaves, what I saw with my own eyes, 100 hours, absolute contradiction to the psychopathy criteria. He demonstrates empathy. He knows how to regulate impulses. He knows how to self-reflect. He owns his, his bad choices in life. There's no... You know, there's no rationalizing or justifying. He's a new man. Now also understand, I mean, as much as we say psychopaths can't change because that's the typical cancel culture perspective is that there's certain groups that just can't change and we ought to cancel them. Neuroplasticity would say otherwise. If you're not familiar with neuroplasticity, it's the idea that the brain changes based on our choices and based on the activities we involve ourselves in, that the brain is malleable. And I, I truly believe that David has put a lot of work in over the last 35 years and that he has truly experienced a transformation that he's not the same person that he was in 76 to 77. Now, I'm not saying he should get out. I'm, I would not say that at all because I think it's a slap in the face to the families that lost young ladies. Um, but I do believe that he has experienced the real transformation behind bars and is making the most of his life.
0: I think a lot of people have a visceral reaction to the idea that someone who committed such acts could be reformed. And I think a lot of that comes from like the idea of humanizing serial killers is problematic to a lot of people because they like to see serial killers as the other. They don't want to see people who could commit some act like that such as murder as someone that, you know, like something they could do. Like they don't want to think they're capable of that. Uh, Do you think that people in general are capable of these things under the right circumstances? I do. I think that that there's a hidden psychopath in everybody. I think
1: if you study history, you go back in time and you look at various points in history, you will see that mankind has a potential for evil that is humanistic society where we believe we're all wonderful people and it's the other guy that's the narcissist or the other guy that's the psychopath. You know, we don't see these things. But if you go back in time... If you lived in 1940 Germany, the chances are you would be on the wrong side of history. You probably would do things that you didn't didn't think you're capable of. I don't think everybody's capable of being psychopath in 24 hours. I think it's an evolution. You know, spend six months brooding over your resentments, spend six months, you know, justifying every wrong thing you do, pulling away from community, isolating. You'd be shocked at what you evolve into. I think there's a hidden beast in everybody. Now, do I think there's a genetic variant that's associated with psychopathy? Yeah, that's a possibility. Geneticists have identified the MAOA gene or the L-MAOA gene, supposed to be the psychopathic gene, but not everybody with that gene is a serial killer. There are many pro-social psychopaths that are CEOs of corporations or generals in, in the military. So the idea of committing evil is not just linked to that particular gene, I think it's human nature and I think if you press people enough and they go in a certain direction, you'd be surprised at what what we might evolve into. And that's not a popular message today because we live in a humanistic society where everybody's under the delusion of goodness. We have delusions of goodness that we're wonderful people and everybody else is the problem. Um, But I think we lack self-reflection in our society. Um, Carl Jung would say we have to confront the shadow and I don't think the average American has really confronted the shadow. We've believed our own press clippings, and we see ourselves as good rather than seeing the potentiality of evil that lies in everyone.
0: We live in a one-chance society, so if you mess up, especially big, that's it. Because yes. people want to feel that they are, I don't know if it's morally superior to their fellow man, or if by, like, oh, great. You, like you brought up earlier about the cancel culture, is it that if we cancel someone for making a mistake— that somehow is supposed to elevate us as if we're infallible to making such mistakes. I don't think that's... Uh, I agree. I don't think that is uh, reasonable. I think that just ends up hurting everybody. And I don't like the idea that you can't give someone second chances. Like you said, David shouldn't get out of jail, probably. I mean, you can't bring back the loved ones that he took from some people's families. But at the same time, he has made a big change in his life. And in the prison setting, which you would know is one of those things where a lot of people you know they say you go to prison for a petty crime and then you become an actual criminal in in prison like a lot of people get worse or they do more violent things especially if they're looking at life in prison and that's what i think is really incredible was that he was able to turn around and try to do the best he can in his situation uh do you know what brought on this conversion and like how this turnaround happened
1: yeah well in 1988 he'd been in prison for 10 years Actually, 11. He started in Attica, then went to Clinton, then Sullivan, and now he's in Shoregunk. But he was walking the yard by himself at night, cold evening in January, 1988. He used to walk the yard about two hours at night. And this young inmate by the name of Rick, Hispanic man, came up to him and said, Jesus loves you. And he said, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. I've committed too many horrible acts. And Rick was very persistent. He would meet David every night in that yard and share his faith with him. Uh, even in the cold, he would just walk with David. And then about six months into this friendship, he gave David a, a pocket Bible, a Gideon Bible, and David brought it back to his cell, started reading it. And one night in his cell, he just started sobbing. And he, he experienced what he calls, what the Bible calls repentance. And he just said, Mike, I just, Dr. Kepler, I just cried. I couldn't stop crying. So I was crying not because I screwed up my life. I was crying because I hurt other people, and I sinned against people and God, and I just was begging God for forgiveness. And the next day he said, I felt like a, a, a weight came off my chest. And from that day forward, he just, he really, he, he made it a mission to own his crimes. David is not chomping at the bit to leave. I mean, he, he blew off more than half his parole hearings. He's got parole opportunity every two years. But then he found out from the families of the victims that they perceived his blowing it off as cavalier or arrogant. So he decided to show up at the parole hearings, but he doesn't show up expecting to leave He's 70 years old. He just shows up to share his story. Uh, He'll be going up for parole again in June. And he says, look, I own it. I did what I did. I deserve to stay here. He's not trying to get out. And look, here's the thing. If Nisa Moskowitz, the mother of his last victim, Stacy, forgave David and they began a friendship, David gave me all the letters between the two of them, um, beautiful letters. I mean, she just experienced tremendous forgiveness towards him. If Nisa forgave him for murdering her daughter, Stacy, I mean, it really it it really puts me in check again, not arguing for his release. David's not arguing that. but I, but I do believe the man has experienced a transformation is doing the best he can to make the most of his days that are left.
0: The idea of the general public, for instance, forgiving David Berkowitz, that's one I find kind of fascinating because, like you said, if she could forgive him, why would someone who doesn't even know the guy or doesn't know that much about him not be able to forgive him? And I think a lot of that actually comes into maybe the media or just how society in general. For instance, we like to put a name on these serial killers. So he's not just David Berkowitz; he's the son of Sam. And why sure. do we do that? Because that takes away his identity as a human. He's not a human being anymore. He's a he's an idea. He's a you know an oh ent- entity. A he's, monster. Yeah, he's like something again, going back to the other, he's something, you know, the boogeyman in the night. And once you do that, how would you be able to forgive a monster? You can't because they're not a human to you. And I think that's where maybe the first part of forgiving people like this would occur in society is when we can look at people as actual people, not just, oh, let's, you know, we're watching a murder documentary, a crime documentary, and look what this guy did. What a freak. But there is a person behind those actions, and if they're a person, that means they can change and they can do good. I think we, just as people, need to be able to believe that.
1: I agree 100% with everything you just said. And I, I think the broader issue is, I mean, if you spend enough time on social media, you'll see what I'm about to say. We're living in a day where self-reflection is very low. There's a lot of eyes on everybody else. Like, you're, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find on Facebook or social media Somebody confessing, you know, their own iniquities. It's usually blasting somebody else. You know, it's my ex-spouse is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people's ex-spouse is a narcissist on Facebook? I mean, I, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. everybody's ex-boyfriend is a is a narcissist. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, focus on intuition. There's not a lot of focus on introspection, and that's just a cultural phenomenon. Everybody is very intuitive into everybody else's business, but not very introspective, aware of their own self. I mean, you go back 150 years, go read the book Crime and Punishment, classic, one of the, probably the top 10 classic books of all time by the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, And it's a book about an average Joe who evolves into a cold-blooded murderer. And it's a deep dive into the human psyche, the emotions that plague all of us. That's what was so fascinating to me about meeting with David. I focused on nine themes in my book. And you can go on Amazon and buy it right now. It was ranked the number one new release in the serial killer subgenre in October for a week. It sold thousands of copies since October. I focused on those themes that are relevant to all of us. Not the typical triad, hurt animals, wet bed, wet the bed, you know, light fires the stuff that separates us from serial killers, I focused on shame, isolation, resentment. I focused on the abandonment. I focused on themes that the average reader is going to say, wow, I experienced these things too. And maybe I didn't commit murder, but man, I can see how it increased my aggression levels. Mm -hmm. And I can see how I might have gone down the same path. So I call it Monster Mirror because that's the name of the book, by the way.
0: I was going to say, is it self-reflection,
1: why you named it that? I called it that because I was expecting to see a monster. Not seeing a monster in the present day, but at least hearing his story in the 70s, learning about a monster, and instead I saw a mirror. I saw a reflection, and I I thought back on the words of, what's that Puritan's name from the 1700s? John Bradford. John Bradford, when they were watching back in the 1700s, inmates that are, are criminals being sentenced to a crime usually a very public act in the middle of a community. The town people would come out, they would heckle the criminal, call him a scumbag, a scoundrel. And John Bradford stood up and he pointed at the criminal and he said, but for the grace of God, so go I. There, but for the grace of God, so go I. And what he meant by that was that man right there is me. And if it hadn't been the grace of God on my life, I could have went down that same direction and maybe evolved into the same kind of person. So the, the book is a real challenge for the reader. Because you're gonna learn about David. By the end of the book, you're gonna learn about yourself.
0: It's amazing how as a society we haven't moved on from looking at people like that where oh that you know, we still do the perp walks and we still always mm. gawk at the people that are going past and handcuffs at the courthouse, like, oh, what did they do? Look at them. I'm glad I'm not them. I could never be like them. And you can, just a couple mistakes, you know. It's not it's not there's not a lot separating the average person from becoming one of these people that we view as lesser or, you know, as something else, even though it's really not that difficult. Like you can end up that way just by happenstance sometimes.
1: Was that well right? let me tell you, let me let, let me tell you this. The anonymous surveys, I think it was Pew Pew Research Center. If it wasn't Pew Research Center, it was another another uh organization that does statistical studies. They did a survey years ago, about 10 years ago, that showed the average person would commit homicide if they could get away with it. So you know the the premise of that movie, The Purge, yeah. is very much true. That law and order is really the only thing that keeps a lot of people at bay. Um, and and that may sound like a strong statement, but you're not a student of history if you think that I'm I'm crazy. Because if you take a trip through the cor- the corridors of history, you'll see that mankind has done some pretty depraved things. And if you think you're not like mankind, well, the genome project. Which was it went on for about 40 years? Geneticists were taking uh, samples of people's genes from across the world. The bottom line conclusion of the genome project it was this: we're 99 percent genetically similar, all of us. So as much as we like to think we're different than the herd, we would never do that. The potentialities in everybody, and and you got to be you got to wonder how much crime is not happening Mm -hmm. simply because of law and order.
0: What I find really disturbing is the fact that David Berkowitz isn't even an anomaly anymore. Like he's not really an outlier in modern society because we have mass shootings every week. It seems like that's what I was thirteen a week. 13 per
2: week. Well, that's what I was going to say with how like earlier we were talking about just like the different things that could happen to you like now and just like feeling like that loneliness and stuff like that. Like with like the shooters and just people Mm. acting out now, like the people feeling that, you know, and how easy they said Mm. like you can just go down that path that you didn't even want to. But you just find like you you find like that's the only one you have sometimes. Yeah.
1: Well, let's 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 isolate just one of the themes in my book that you just alluded to, and that's, that's isolation. Okay. Let's target that one theme. When people isolate from each other, which you might not think of America as isolated because we are a very extroverted nation, but extroversion doesn't mean bonding or, or really, you know, close relationships. Um, we, we really are very individualistic as a society, as opposed to collect collectivist nations, collectivist nations like Africa, Asia, which by the way, there are hardly any mass shootings in those nations. They're all about we, not me. America is all about me, not we. So we're very individualistic, even though we're extroverted. It puts this wedge between us. That isolation, it's been proven through studies in behavioral science. It increases our aggression levels and it decreases our empathy levels. And you can see this, like adrenaline goes up, that's aggression, oxytocin goes down, that's empathy the more people isolate. Uh, I'll give you, for instance, University of Japan did a study. They took a group of rodents, a community of rodents. They isolated a sample for 15 days. After 15 days of isolation, they returned the isolated rodents back to the community. At the point of reentry, the isolated isolated rodents attacked the other rodents because in isolation, adrenaline goes up. We become more aggressive. Oxytocin goes down. We become more empathetic. And here's another case in point, 2020 was probably the year from hell in America. There was so much contention in America on the streets, riots, social media, very contentious year, 2020. Now, some may say, well, the contention was because of Donald Trump, George Floyd, race, social issues. But the fact is, we were all isolated. And the more isolated we are, the more combative we get. And when you got these school shooters that never feel like they connect. Even David Berkowitz, he called himself an outsider in the letters that he wrote taunting the police when he, when he did the killings. That kind of outsider mentality where I feel like I'm not connecting, I'm not assimilated. It, it, it makes one very aggressive and very less empathetic.
0: Well, in prisons, that's arguably the worst punishment is isolation. When you can't Absolutely. be, yeah, that's the one that always literally drives people mad. Yeah, when you
2: get thrown in the hole. Yeah, that's, like that's, solitary.
0: That's, that's usually the biggest punishment for anyone because humans are not meant to be isolated, not even for stretches of time, just isolated. Mm-hmm. Like we are a group animal.
1: We are a social animal. The most introverted person listening to this podcast is still a social creature. You may not need socializing as much, but you still need it. You still need social connection. In fact, if you study introverts, you'll find they have a rich fantasy life. And usually in the fantasies, they're getting some kind of connection. They may not be getting it in reality, but they're getting it in the fantasies because social is part of who we are. It's just part of the human makeup. Deny us that, and all sorts of weird things begin to happen with human behavior. I mean, we're so social that if you were on an island alone, you would take a volleyball, paint a face on it, and call it Wilson.
0: Well, when you go with like the themes of isolation, it's strange how, at one time, we were able to point out like these mental health issues associated with it as a negative thing, and now it's almost celebrated. like I remember reading um David Berkowitz was inspired by Travis Bickle from cool. Taxi Driver, and if you look at that movie and the way people in the audience at the time viewed that movie, compared to, say, a more modern version of that, which would be The Joker. And people celebrated the Joker like, oh, I understand, I can relate to the character. And it was almost like a positive view on the character doing these atrocious things. Whereas Travis Bickle, you're not supposed to root for him.
1: Well, you know, Martin Scorsese, who wrote or, or directed Taxi Driver, said something fascinating. He said it right in the midst of my case study with David Berkowitz. And when he said it, it was like a confirmation from the heavens that I was on the right track. He said in 1977 or 75... When Taxi Driver came out, he said Travis Bickle was an anomaly. He said today every other person is Travis Bickle, and Martin Scorsese said that. And when he said that, I said, "Boy, am I on the money here?" Because you know David David Berkowitz was sort of the first fruits of a cultural phenomenon, and uh, that's why I find his story so interesting. Is although he was anomalous in 1970s, he's really he was really paving the way. He was really the first fruits of what we see is much more ubiquitous in 2024.
0: What thing or things do you think led society down this road? Like, where did the degradation come from?
1: Well, I think the internet made it more comfortable, you know, for people to uh, rely on social media as a substitute for relationships. I think the internet is a wonderful supplement to relationships, but it's a horrible substitute. I mean, if it's all you got, Mm -hmm. that's a problem. I know France just did a study with monkeys. They put plexiglass in between the monkeys. The goal of the study was to see what social media does to us. Um, and the monkeys could convey, you know, communicate to each other through the plexiglass. So just like social media, they could see each other, they could hear each other, but they couldn't touch each other. And sure enough, similar to the rat experiment, when they removed the, the plexiglass, the monkeys attacked each other. Showing the importance of touch, so I think without touch, I mean the touch is so important. When you touch someone, it releases oxytocin. Oxytocin into interacts with the pituitary gland, which sits under the brain. The pituitary gland uh, helps us stay in homeostasis. It just gives us good sleep at night. I mean the the physiology behind touch and the psychology behind it is so impactful. So you know when you're on social media, you're pulling out in touch with people anymore. The more We lose touch, the more we're out of touch.
0: That's a really interesting point because social media, it's almost like a mirage. It makes us think that we are connecting with other people and engaging in meaningful ways. But like you said, without that touch, without somebody right in front of you, it's just different. It's not the same.
1: No, it's not the same. And there's also sort of a lure to social media because I don't have to take the risks I take face-to-face. I have more control over the scenario. In on one hand, it's alluring. You can see why people want to stay home or why they want to hide behind the screen because of the la- the less risk there is associated with it and the more control they have. But just like any addiction, it feels good, but it's not good. It's 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 hurting you. So it has that addictive makeup to it, social media. It's, it's giving you something that makes you feel good. You know, there's less consequence, at least in the immediate or on the front end. But the back end, the long view, it's actually it's actually hurting you. It's more detrimental than beneficial.
0: What actions do you think we could take as a, su- a society as like a recourse from this mass despair that seems to be uh, permeated? It's going to have to happen in the home. It's going to have to happen
1: with parents being more firm with their children on putting down the phone and sitting at the dinner table and eating for an hour or half hour without the phone. You know, we're going out tonight. We're gonna to go. We're gonna go bowling. Or we're gonna go wherever. But we're not gonna. We're not gonna hide behind screens. It's gonna to have to start in the home. I also think it can be in the schools too. I think that there can be an emotional intelligence curriculum that can probably begin at an early age, where kids learn social skills, interpersonal skills, and learn self-reflection, intrapersonal skills, looking within oneself. That can be incorporated in the curriculum as well. Um, but I think the social landscape is a disaster. And whatever the home or the school can do to repair the social landscape is important. I mean, we're living in a day now where people are ghosting each other, which basically means if I'm done with you, I don't even tell you why I'm done with you. I don't try to resolve a conflict. My feet do the talking and you just don't see me anymore. I mean, that kind of thing is not, I'm 46. I don't remember that, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I'm, I'm old enough to see the changes in the culture and people are afraid of people they're not willing to pay the price for relationship whatever we can do to curb that i think is vital
0: well just in in my la- in the last 20 years or so i've noticed there's definitely like a multi-angled attack on the home life you i mean social media is one of the biggest ones because you could be with your family and still completely disconnected but there's also the work culture now where even if you are lucky enough to have both parents at home, everyone's working and they're never around when you want them to be or need them to be. and then you know the school system I feel is failing kids um there's not a sense of community anymore. People don't associate with their uh you know their neighbors
2: well, there's not most thing things to do in most people's neighborhoods anymore yeah for like for especially for like kids to do you know, like all the parks and community centers, all that like all that stuff's down.
1: True. That's why I think it starts in the home because you really don't have much c- control over what's happening in the neighborhood. But you do as a father or a mother or, or a caretaker, guardian, whatever, you do have more control over, okay, I don't I, I don't have control of the fact that there's nothing for you to do in this neighborhood. But when we're home together, we're going to have blocks of time, whether we're eating eating a dinner together or watching a movie together or playing a board game, where we're going to engage each other. And if there's a a friction in this house between you and your brother, friction between us, we're going to sit down and we're going to resolve that friction. Yeah, don't let things linger. Yeah, we're not going to let things linger. We're going to learn conflict resolution skills. This is the stuff that's not happening. And, you know, you can see it abroad. And it's, it's one of the ingredients, not the only ingredient. I read about nine different ingredients in the book, but it's one of the ingredients in this recipe of senseless violence that we're seeing in the culture.
0: Setting a time blocks of time just for family is one of the easiest ways to fix things. Like you were saying, no phones, no TV, no, you know, no computers, but there is, and it's not just the kids today. It's even the, you know, the parents, even people our age or older millennials, they just, it's almost like an addiction, an obsession. They can't go without these things even for an hour or two. And you know the kid acts up. What do you do? Ah, just give them the phone. They can watch YouTube or something. And it's I don't, easier. It's easier. It's easier. Yeah, exactly. And they just sometimes. To do the right thing, you can't do the easy thing. You have to do the hard things, and you have to make people uncomfortable, and you have to break these uh, technological attachments that we have. I think that's the first major step into uh, fixing some of these issues.
2: I mean, like, how often nope. do you catch yourself just doom scrolling? Yeah, for no reason. Like, and I could have been doing something productive, but like, exactly.
1: Oh, I, I myself have to fight it on a regular basis. You know, I go into the gym, and I tell myself I'm not going to bring in the phone. Be on the treadmill and looking at the phone, I'm going to deliberately leave it in the car. I mean, I, I have to like fight that all the time because it's easy for me to be owned by that phone more than I own the phone itself. So I think we're all facing that struggle.
0: As uh, Arnold said, not too long ago about people on their phones in the gym, it's Mickey Mouse stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Put it away. <laughs> yes. As we wind down here, I kind of wanted to go back to the earlier topic of forgiveness What I wanted to ask you was, has your interactions with, because a hundred hours is a long time to spend with somebody. So how has your interactions with David um, changed or solidified your views on forgiveness?
1: I was just with him this morning, believe it or not. I'm in New York right now. I'm in uh, about maybe half hour away from the prison. I'm in West Point area. He's in Wallkill. I went to go visit him this morning. I brought a friend to meet him. We were there about three hours. So I continue my relationship with him. One of the things I probably have learned about forgiveness from knowing David is that if you're really going to forgive somebody, this is thinking back on Nisa, her daughter Stacy was murdered by David. It's not true forgiveness. It's not just lip service. It's not just I forgive you. Because people say I forgive you all the time, but they may suppress the anger, the feelings. Nisa really was angry at David for a long time, so she really acknowledged the hurt. I mean, she lived in that hurt for a while. Uh, she hated David. She was on Geraldo Rivera calling for his execution. She spent years angry with him. So she never evaded the pain. I think to truly forgive somebody, you have to do it from the pain. You can't deny what happened. There's too much of a, a lip service kind of forgiveness that it, you know, the, the, the real pain of what happened sort of gets suppressed and it doesn't lead to any real breakthrough. With Nasa, she forgave David from the place of pain. And uh, that's important. And then David David was humbled by that forgiveness. It really played a big role in transforming him and dignifying him. Um, but if anybody's out there and they're having to, you know, forgive somebody, don't make excuses for the person because that almost like suppresses yeah. the anger you have. Don't make excuses. Don't say they didn't know what they were doing. Don't say you know they meant well. No, what they did was evil. Very well, could be that they did evil against you, uh, as evil as it gets, it was committed against you, and you got to face that. And then from that place of pain, you know, and you usually you need divine help with this. You need to know that God forgives you, and that becomes an inspiration or an impetus to forgive others. And then forgive from that pain, Um, and that's where the breakthrough begins.
0: Do you think evil is an inherent part of human nature, or is it just crafted? No, I think it's it's.
1: I think there's an evil in all of us. I think something went wrong somewhere a long time ago. Um, I'm a Christian, so I believe in the scriptures. I believe Adam and Eve, their nature, we inherited it genetically. It's not hard to prove when you study genetics. I think that that bent that proclivity to do wrong and to be selfish rather than selfless. I mean, you see it from the time of childhood. You don't teach a child to lie. You teach a child to tell the truth. You don't teach a child to be aggressive. You teach a child to be gentle. You don't teach a child to be greedy. You teach a child to share. The child comes out of the womb as much as we think they're cute and adorable. They come out sinners. I mean, my, my son was lying about the cookie from the cookie jar at one years old with crumbs on his mouth. I had to teach him the truth. So sin is like weeds in the garden. It just comes naturally. Virtue, on the other hand, like roses and, and, and carnations and lilies in a garden, you gotta cultivate that. The weeds just come naturally. And I think it's the same with sin. I think that we naturally sin. But we have to cultivate virtue and cultivate goodness.
0: Well, as I said earlier about the easy thing is usually not the right thing. To be a virtuous person takes hard work and practice. You can't just be virtuous. You have to actually work at that every day. And I think that's also a failing of society is people don't want to work to better themselves or even their families.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right, brother.
0: This was a fun talk. (laughs) I mean, I know a good bit about David Berkowitz just from documentaries and whatnot over the years. I mean, he's one of the most infamous killers in American history, though, if we like old basketball and football players, if we, you know, take the stats and, you know, put them in modern times. No, he wouldn't even make a blip on the radar at this point. But which is sad to say. He has a very interesting story and the fact that he was able in prison to turn his life around and do good, I think that again goes to my point of being a virtuous person. Or at
2: least trying to do if it, you know, he's trying to do yeah. good. And if you know, and I think that's a big, you know, a big part well, of it. Well that's the too. thing. You
0: have to know that we we all were infalli- you know, we're all fallible. We will fail. No matter what you do, you can fail and you will make mistakes. But you just have to keep working and being, you know, working towards being a better person. And like uh, Mike said, we're all sinners. Mm-hmm. You know, we're born sinners. Right. So you just have to work mm-hmm. at it. But um, yeah, you know, I thank you for coming on because I, I was I was really interested in your book when you sent the thing over to me. Uh, it sounded really cool the way you went into it with uh, a different look. It's not just your serial killer. Let's get in the mind of a serial killer kind of thing. Like you were saying, it's more about you know, the isolation and the loneliness and less, uh, Correct. the more entertaining bits is, oh, was he adopted? Did he wet his bed? The stuff we always hear. Do you have any plans for doing this in the future? Maybe because you had met other killers in the past. Do you have plans to do this? Again? Yes. I
1: have, I have somebody else that I don't want to say the name, but if I said the name, most people would know it. If somebody else that's, uh, reading the book right now, and, uh, I might be meeting with them. I'm waiting to hear back from them. I, I enjoyed the journey too much of seeing the grace of God in some very gritty places and to see the grace in gritty places again with another person and to help shed light on what the heck is going on in the minds of people that do these things
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a day and age where there's such a problem. I, so I find it purposeful. So chances are I'm going to do it again. As far as the listener goes, uh, you can go on Amazon, look for Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz by Michael Caparelli PhD, and uh, you can order it there.
0: All right. Excellent. And one final question, because I do think this is pertinent to the conversation. Having spent so much time with David, and even though you went into it more, maybe with like a psychological study, would you consider him a friend now?
1: Yes. Yes. I'm, 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 I'm a loyal guy. I keep friends forever. I visited him this morning and I visited him four of times after the case study and will continue to. So most definitely he is a friend.
0: All right. Well, good to know. Yeah. If you folks want to check out our stuff, you can follow us at DPW Podcast. We are on X, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Dr. Michael Caparelli, uh, we appreciate you coming on. And, you know, you get uh, another book come out. Feel free to reach out. We'll have you on again.
1: Thank you, gentlemen. You guys have a great night. You you too.